Hi, writers. This is Jim Thayer. I'm the author of 14 novels published by Simon & Schuster, Putnam, and others, and I taught novel writing at the University of Washington Extension School for many years. Let's talk today about the villain, one of my favorite topics about characters. Your protagonist, your hero, isn't the only person in the novel who who should have layers. A one-dimensional villain is a little more interesting than Popeye's nemesis, Bluto. Remember him? Some villains are notoriously complicated, such as Hannibal Lecter or the Phantom of the Opera, Sauron, Count Dracula, and some villains are less complicated, Nurse Ratched, Arik Goldfinger, and the Shark. But almost all effective villains share these two traits. They are formidable, and they are understandable. Novels present a duel. The hero versus the villain. A successful novel usually has a hero who has special characteristics, those that make him or her worth reading about. The hero is often courageous and wise, or sometimes highly skilled. Sometimes he has a remarkable talent. There wouldn't be much of a novel if the villain were a pallid dummy or a bungler or an incessant whiner or a a coward. There'd be no duel. The hero would shoo away the villain in in the second chapter. It'd be a short novel. The villain should be a match for the hero. The villain should be smart enough and resourceful and tough enough to last the first 348 pages of a 350-page novel. In the late 1930s, Superman's first foes in those great comic books were bank robbers and muggers. But the writers soon realized that they were no match for Superman. There were no tense duels. So they quickly came up with the evil genius Lex Luthor and a villain named Live Wire, who, uh, a woman who could control electricity, and Metala, a cyborg whose heart was kryptonite. Alice Orr, the novelist, has said that to avoid the uninteresting single-dimension villain, the reader should be able to recognize the villain's motivation. The villain should, quote, from Malasor, know and understand on a mentally engaging level the reasons for an effective villain's behavior. She says, we don't have to sympathize with that behavior, but we must understand it. Almost all novels have a villain, someone or something who is actively opposing the protagonist. A good recipe for a villain is to make him or her formidable and understandable. Let's talk about a, a, another topic that's I think is a fun one, and this is the, the sidekick in a novel. The person who is friends with the hero and accompanies him or her on the adventure. Listen to this sentence from Helen Green's 
At the Actors' Boarding House, a 1906 novel. The Red Swede, who is a yegman and a good one, sat over a pint of champagne with Dopey Polly from Chinatown and his sidekick, the Runt. This this wonderful sentence is that way because of the nicknames, the slang. A yegman is a safe cracker. The dissonance, a pint of champagne, not beer. And most importantly, the promise of a tale involving a sidekick. Readers love sidekicks, such as Holmes's Watson or Frodo's Sam, Aubrey's Dr. Matron. The sidekick, the sidekick in a story is the story's second character, a second lead, who is the protagonist's friend and often her accomplice. A sidekick is a remarkably useful plotting device. Here's why. Friendships are as good in fiction as they are in real life. Euripides once said, One loyal friend is worth 10,000 relatives. A trusty sidekick will add to a story those things that we love in our real friendships, the, the tight bonds, the understanding, the sympathy, the undying loyalty. Those things between Frodo Baggins and Sam Gamgee in Tolkien's The Lord of the Ring are a great pleasure for us readers. Another reason the sidekick is useful is that she can help define the hero. Novelist Raymond Obsfeld puts it this way, quote, Putting contrasting elements next to each other tends to emphasize each work. Putting similar elements tends, uh, next to each other tends to blend them together. That's Raymond Obsfeld. A sidekick who is vastly different from the hero will sharpen the reader's mental image of the hero. The novelist Rex Stout's protagonist is Nero Wolfe, who weighs about 260 pounds and spends four hours a day tending his orchids. And, and, and Nero Wolfe revels in beer and food. Quote, Once he burned up a cookbook because it said to remove the hide from a ham end before putting it in the pot with lima beans. End quote, said his sidekick Archie Goodwin in the novel The Gambit. Wolf has little tolerance for women and keeps himself in strict control. Quote, he shook his head, moving it a full half inch right and left, which was for him a frenzy of negation, end quote, Goodwin said in the novel Instead of Evidence. Wolf believes in protocols. He doesn't allow the use of his first name. Wolf is prickly, intellectual, and he doesn't suffer fools. Wolf's sidekick in those novels is Archie Goodwin, who is a private detective and is the narrator of the 33 novels. Goodwin is a funhouse, a reverse mirror image of Wolf. Goodwin likes women, and he likes dancing at the flamingo. He's slender, he plays poker, and he's a baseball fan. While Wolf seldom leaves his home, Goodwin is at home on the streets, and Goodwin famously drinks only milk. Wolf and Goodwin 
are made vivid by the contrast with each other. Goodwin, the sidekick, helps define Wolf. What else can a sidekick do? A sidekick can help deliver information. You ever notice that when we stand in a bookstore and flip through the pages of a novel we're, we're thinking of buying, our eyes are, are usually stop at dialogue. Dialogue with its back and forth is inviting to the eye. Most stories, uh, most novels require that some information be given to the reader. Uh, sometimes it's back and forth and sometimes it's information that occurred outside the awareness of the protagonist. Dialogue between the hero and the sidekick can reveal information, and that dialogue is more compelling than, say, interior monologue, which is a character thinking, or the writer's narrative, which is where the writer just sets out information on the page. Another thing a sidekick, can, a sidekick can do is to offer another point of view. Sometimes the story's hero can't physically be in a location where important things are, incur are occurring. She's too far away and there isn't enough time to get there. Send the sidekick, who can be another camera on the action. And the sidekick likely has a different background and personality, and she'll probably be impressed and frightened and moved by different things than the hero. The sidekick's take is often different, which is useful for the writer. Another thing a sidekick can do is change the texture of a scene. A novel has an essential quality, and so do individual scenes. Uh, perhaps it's humor, such as John Kennedy tools a confederacy of dunces, or maybe it's a poignancy such as John Grisham's A Painted House, or, or Tension, uh, anything by Tom Clancy, or uh, maybe the essential quality is wonder, uh, such as something, uh, maybe Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama. There, there are many other textures that are essential qualities in a novel. But too much of anything too much humor or too much tension, anything, can deaden a novel because of the sameness. A sidekick can add a counterpoint to the novel's essence. Bernard Cornwell's wonderful novels are filled with danger and tension, usually from fierce infantry battles, and th those are the essence of those novels. But here are Sharp and his friend Harper, Again, uh, this is in the novel, A Sharp's Devil, Changing a Texture. This is Bernard Cornwell. If you weren't so fat, Sharp said mildly, we could walk. Fat, I'm just well made, so I am. The response, immediate and indignant, was well practiced. Just because a man lives well, there's no need to make remarks about the evidence of his health. Sharp and uh, Harper here are lightening things up, and in this scene, they uh, that's really useful. The tension needs to be relieved once in a while, and their relationship does it. Here's a key about creating sidekicks. Make the sidekick dissimilar from the protagonist. We writers often tend to give our heroes many of the writer's many of our own personality trait, traits. It's easy to do 
for the sidekick, too. But a story will lose the advantage of contrast if the protagonist and sidekick are much the same. An example of doing this right is found in Patrick O'Brien's novels about the British Navy in the time of Nelson, the first novel of which is Master and Commander. The protagonist is Jack Aubrey, who is tall and stout and has a florid complexion. He's an expert at sea, but a bumbler on land. The sidekick, Stephen Maturin, is slender and pale with a fidgety manner. He's a surgeon and naturalist. He's a bumbler at sea, but savvy on land. Audrey and Maturin are entirely different fictional constructs, and much of the pleasure from these 20 novels comes from their prickly and affectionate interaction generated by their differences. This uh, this huge contrast between the hero and the sidekick, sidekick is a formula. But formulas are formulas because they work so well. Think of uh, C.S. Forster's The African Queen, the world-weary sot and the prim, respe- repressed lady. Uh, Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man, the streetwise detective and the wealthy society woman. Cervantes' Don Quixote the quixotic knight, and the faithful, simple squire. We should follow the form when creating a sidekick. Readers expect certain things in a sidekick and will be intensely disappointed if those expectations aren't met. The main expectation is loyalty. Once the hero and the sidekick are together, they must be faithful and true to each other. To have a plot point where the sidekick turns on the protagonist, really turns on him, not just a feint, would be so distasteful as to probably make the manuscript unpublishable. Quote, a true friend stabs you in the front, Oscar Wilde said, never in the back. Readers and and publishers uh, won't tolerate it. The sidekick, among all other things, should be loyal. Please allow me a moment of self-promotion. My new novel, Fagin and Miss Havisham, is now available at Amazon. It's there for e-readers such as the Kindle, and soon it'll be in the print version and an audio version. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one. The novel is the story of famous Charles Dickens characters taking place when they were younger than in his novels. So we meet the pickpocket Fagin and the thumper Bill Sykes when, from Oliver Twist when they were younger, and the crazy Miss Havisham and the unstoppable lawyer Jaggers from Great Expectations when they were younger, and Police Inspector Bucket from Bleak House the evil Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. I loved Charles Dickens' novels when I was young, and in Fagin and Miss Havisham, I mixed them all together earlier in their lives to see what happens. Please consider getting a copy of my new novel. You'll see the techniques we talk about in these episodes in action, at least the best I can do with them, and it'd be much appreciated. How many characters should we put in a scene? 
Here's a good technique. Normally, a scene should have as few characters as possible. And there are a couple reasons for this. First, otherwise, the characters need to be placed by the writer, and all of them moved around as the action goes forward. Positioning the characters becomes a chore, both for the writer, who must do it, and for the reader, who must figure it out. And another thing, having a lot of minor characters in a scene distracts the writer because they need to be accounted for, and often the writer gives them things to do just to give them something to do, which dilutes the effect of the scene. Most characters in our novel should support the plot. They should contribute to the story in a significant way, rather than simply being props. Otherwise, the minor characters and the walk-ons, with their names and physical descriptions, clutter the story and distract the reader. Most novels have a few walk-ons. They're unavoidable in fiction and in life, but ration them carefully in the novel. Here's an example. Here are two scenes. One, a pretty good scene, and the other, not so good because of the number of characters. Here's the scene. It's a mine shaft. It's uh, at dusk. Uh, a miner is crouching forward to cut the cable on an ore car train. His supervisor is riding up on a car, and the miner wants to murder him. The train can't be seen down in the dark tunnel, but the rumble indicates it's getting closer. We have two characters, the, the miner and the unseen supervisor. Well, here's an alternate uh, an alternate scene. The train operator is at the winch. The two miners are walking toward the main shaft carrying their lunch pails. A mine inspector is poking at the, ra at the shaft ceilings looking for weaknesses. A mechanic is getting ready to oil the winch. A water boy is there. Uh, so is the assistant mine supervisor and the air quality inspector. Which of these scenes is easier to write? The first version with two characters. It'll be easiest for the writer and for the reader to, to focus on the criminal act about to be committed. How should we, or how should we name our characters? In the great allegorical tale Pilgrim's Progress from 1678, John Bunyan apparently didn't want readers to wonder as to the nature of his characters. His hero is, is named Christian. A monster goes by the name Giant Despair. Uh, a pompous snob is named Worldly Wiseman. Uh, the tradition continues in Nicholas Nickleby, Charles Dickens names the ignorant and brutal headmaster Wackford Squeers. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful name? Uh, in Oliver Twist, the orphanage's beetle is Mr. Bumble, and the undertaker is Mr. Sourberry. That tradition continues. Tom Wolfe in A Man in Full names the central character Charles Croker, and his, his nemesis is a banker who wants to foreclose on all Croker's properties named Ray Peepgas. Uh, most characters in novels these days are given less meaningful names. Names are often indicative of nothing. Uh, 
Still, the writer should give thought to names of uh, our characters rather than finding a name by flipping through uh, a phone book and blindly pointing. A name often brings something to the story. Uh, Orson Scott Card, the great novelist, says, quote, The moment you choose a last name, you bring to the character a load of ethnic, national, even racial baggage. You will almost certainly find that the name opens up all kinds of character possibilities, inviting you to speculate on the character's upbringing. How much did his ethnicity make him who he is? End quote. That's Orson Scott Card. Some writers use a name as a genesis for a character's personality. John J. Miller relays a famous incident. This is John J. Miller. Quote, Professor J.R.R. Tolkien was grading papers on a summer day in 1928 when he came upon a blank page in an exam book. Something inspired him to scribble a few words, and those were, In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. The whole thing might have ended there, but it was only a beginning. Quote, names always generate a story in my mind, uh, Tolkien explained. Quote, eventually I thought I'd better find out what hobbits were like. The name Hobbit inspired all that followed. Tolkien later said, quote, the stories were made rather to provide a world for the languages than the reverse. To me, a name comes first, and the story follows. And that's J.R.R. Tolkien. Should we base a character in our story on a friend or a relative? There is a benefit in, in doing so. Several times during the writing of the novel, we'll want to mention physical characteristics of the character, reminding the reader what the character looks like. Basing the character on someone, using that person as a, as a physical pattern, anchors the character in our, the writer's, minds. We don't have to remember how we described the character earlier in the novel because we have that friend or relative in our minds. But be careful if you pattern a character after a friend or someone in the family. I learned my lesson through my father, a man whose memory I revere. In my very first book, I had a character who was wise and brave in every respect and who was handsome too. Uh, with great pride back when I was 26, I told my dad that I had patterned this character after him. Later that evening, I saw him pick up the novel again and page through it. And the next day he said, I noticed you gave him a potbelly. My dad was being funny and he was teasing me, but my dad indeed have something, uh, had something of a belly to him, and it taught me a lesson. My brother John is an orthopedic surgeon here in uh, Seattle. Uh, Blonde-haired, rugged, good-looking uh, chop-jawed guy with a thick neck and a big chest and big biceps. He says those big biceps are necessary for amputations. I have patterned four main characters after him. I've never told him so, and he's never figured it out. It's the same guy physically every time in each novel. It's my brother John down to his feet. He's never noticed it, or, or maybe I'm, I'm not as good at descriptions as I'd hoped. No character is perfect. So if, if 
We as writers give one of our characters some flaw, such as ears that are too big. The person after whom we base the character, the physical appearance on the of the character, will seize on it and, and won't be happy with it. So take this caution if you're thinking of using a, a, a friend or a family member as a pattern for your character. We have come to the end of this podcast. Next time we'll talk about an important subject, how to craft a scene. What are the elements to creating a good scene and what should we avoid? I am Jim Thayer. I'm the author of The Essential Guide to Writing a Novel, which is out in its second edition. Hope you'll join me then. Until next time, keep tapping those keys.